Okay. Well, I want to thank everybody for being here this evening. Uh, I do have a few people specifically and groups specifically specifically to say thank you to uh, before I get rolling on this first sermon. Uh, I want to thank you to uh, I want to send a thank you to Sojourn Network. Sojourn Network has been so helpful in um, making this conference actually be. They have uh, sponsored this conference financially, and I'm just so thankful for their work uh, with our church and, and coming alongside of our church. It's a joy to be a part of the Sojourn Network, and, and uh, the fact that you're here tonight is in large part due to their, their help, uh, help of us to make this happen. So we're thankful to the Sojourn Network. If you don't know about the Sojourn Network, please visit them online. Just Google it, and you'll be able to find the website. And we're a network of churches, about 50 churches throughout, throughout the country, and, and uh, it's just a great joy to be a part of, part of the network. I want to thank the Journey Southern Illinois also for uh, letting us use their building. I called up Jordan and just asked, "Hey, could we uh, could we do our conference in your building?" And he said, "Well, tell me a little bit about it." And I shared about the conference, and he said, "Yeah, absolutely." And uh, we're just thankful to all the volunteers and everybody here that has been so welcoming, and uh, we're just thankful for our friendship and our partnership with uh, the Journey Southern Illinois to make this happen, uh, to make this happen here uh, tonight and tomorrow. I also want to thank the Christchurch Volunteers. The Christchurch Volunteers have been just fantastic, and uh, we just want to thank, thank them. And, uh, and then finally, I want to thank Jared and Jared Wilson and Michael Kelly. These two men are men that truly love Jesus, and uh, I think there's two senses that you'll walk away with um, when, you, uh, when you hear them preach and, and uh, as you're reflecting on your time with them. I think the sense number one that you'll get is that these guys really love Jesus, and because you listen to them, uh, you love Jesus a little bit more uh, because of God's working through them. But the second piece that I think you'll, you'll get, uh, the second sense that you'll get is, wow, God really loves me. And uh, these men uh, bring us to Jesus and point us to him. And I'm so thankful for these guys. So here's the big question. Why are we doing a conference on the cross? Why are we doing a conference on the cross? I think there are at least two primary reasons that we wanted to do this. We wanted to put this together. Number one, and we want to do a conference on the cross just because the cross is so simple. It's just so simple. If you're a believer in this room, you are a believer because of the cross of Christ. And there is great unity in this room because we all look to this, this, this symbol, this, this cross, um, and we give a big thank you to God. We turn to Jesus together and we just look at that thing and we remember what Jesus did for us. And uh, we're thankful. So there's great unity in a room of believers when we think about the work of Jesus on the cross. So number one, it's just so simple. And number two, the cross, although it is simple, it's multi-intentional and it's dynamic and it's deep and it's wide and it's full and it's rich. There's so much for us to learn about the cross. And if you're in here and you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and if you were to say to me, I know everything there is for me to know, I have discovered everything there is for me to discover about the work of Christ on the cross, I would just simply humbly ask you to reconsider. Because, friends, there's more for us to discover. Nobody kind of reach the, reaches the top or the depths of the gospel of Jesus and kind of puts a big stamp and a bow on it and says, I've got it. I've got it all. The church in Corinth was a pretty messed up church, to say the least. There was sexual immorality. There were lawsuits between believers. Uh, it was just a mess. There was discord. Uh, there was lack of love for the brethren. Even though there's a highly gifted church, the church in Corinth had a lot of problems. And Paul had the, the wonderful audacity to tell them, I have decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. 
And if I was Paul, I would decide to know a lot more than Christ and him crucified. I would, I would want to kind of clench a fist and get in people's faces and, and try to clean house a little bit. But Paul went in there and he knew the nature of the cross and he knew the nature of the gospel that it had, it, that it had implications for those who were living in sexual immorality. It had implications for those who were um, having lawsuits between one another. It had implications for them. And so he went into the city and he decided to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. And so I think we can take from that that the cross is, it really is pretty dynamic. And so we want to look at the cross over the next couple days. So my desire for you in this conference, my real desire for you in this conference is, if you're a believer, that you would respond to the message of the work of Christ with awe, worship, thankfulness to God, if you're a non-believer, I pray that you become face-to-face with the unconditional love of God, the wildly offensive unconditional love of God, and that you would be converted. I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to change your life. And maybe by God's grace, you meet Jesus face-to-face this weekend. And then whatever else the Holy Spirit may have for you, the Holy Spirit may want to work something specific in you or may have some area of repentance that he's going to work out in you over tonight and tomorrow's sessions. And so, whatever the Holy Spirit has, that's what we want to happen. Before my sermon on particular redemption, which is what I'm going to be preaching on, I want to give a few unifying statements that kind of bring us all to the same page in this room. Um, And so this opening sermon that I'm going to be preaching has some passages in it that may frustrate some of you. It has the potential to frustrate some of you. Some of the things I will preach could make your mind run to some false conclusions. Um, Kind of an if this is true, then this must not be true sort of thing. So if this, then that sort of thing. And some of the passages may cause your spiritual radar to go up a little bit. So you may have an impulse to react to some of these things and some of these passages of scripture with counter Bible verses. So I will read you a verse and immediately what may happen internally as you start thinking about other Bible verses. And you unintentionally end up putting the Bible against itself rather than letting the Bible interpret itself. But I want to challenge you from the start, from the beginning of this this whole thing, I want to challenge you to never put Bible verses against each other. Because the truth is, you don't have your Bible verses, and I don't have my Bible verses. We all have one Bible, and we all have Bible verses together. The same Bible. And the Bible is not against itself, it interprets itself. That's a big difference. The Bible is not against itself, it interprets itself. And so we want to come to these Bible verses and we want to look at them and not think of other verses to put against it, but try to interpret and understand what God says in light of all of the Bible. So I want to agree with a few things from the very beginning. Number one, the Bible is our ultimate authority. Can we just agree in this room together that the Bible is our authority, our ultimate authority? It's greater than what we think or what we feel. What God says is a higher authority than what any person in here thinks or what any person in here feels. 
I hope to avoid preaching to you what I think and what I feel, and I hope to hold out to you what God says. So if we can agree together, the Bible is our ultimate authority. The Bible is our ultimate authority. Number two, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to take our minds and take our hearts out, in a sense, and throw them on the pages of the Bible, and then together say, God, would you please shape my thinking, and would you please shape my feeling? We don't want to simply think about God's word. We want to be shaped by God's word. We want our feelings to be wrapped around and rightly appropriated to what God has to say. So God, take our mind and our heart. Not only is your word our ultimate authority, we agree on that, but we're also agreeing to take our mind and take our heart and put it on the pages of the Bible, and let's ask God together to shape our thinking and to shape our feelings. And number three, if we disagree a little bit, Shocker, it's okay. It really is okay for the body of Christ to disagree on some things here and there. Now, I'm not talking about big things. If you come to me and say, you know, Jared, I really don't believe Jesus existed. I saw this History Channel special a while back, and he really didn't live on this earth. What do you have to think about that? Well, I... Unfortunately, wouldn't be able to call you brother or sister. I would have a lot of things to think about that. So those are not the disagreements that I'm talking about. But the nuances of the cross of Christ, if we have some differences, again, shocker, it's okay. We don't have to freak out. So if you look behind you and look in front of you and look into your left and look into your right, and if you'll just look at each other and give each other some grace, and if you'll please be kind to me and give me some grace as well, if you disagree with some of the things that I have to say, please disagree with me, but don't disagree with God's word. Let, if you have any disagreements, let it be with my interpretations of the Bible, not with the Bible itself. But let's give grace to one another. It is okay to disagree. You know what? Unity, to steal this from my friend Andy, who, Pastor Andy stole it from somebody else, I'm sure, who stole it from somebody else. But unity truly is better than uniformity. We do not have to be a group uh, of Stepford Wives type of people who walk around saying the exact same sorts of things and nod the exact same sorts of way and shake hands the exact same sorts of way and say yes sir and no ma'am and yes sir and all these kind of things. So unity is better than uniformity. I want to pray and ask for the Lord's help because I'm going to need it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have to consider great things, to think about wonderful things. God, only you could make something so simple and so understandable. We've all taught the gospel to little children, and, and yet we're all, by your grace, going to stand in awe of the, that simple message because it is so wonderfully complex and beautiful. And so just help us over the next couple days. Help me preach faithfully. Help us to understand things together. Help us to chew on some stuff here. Holy Spirit, we're asking you to work and trusting that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I am going to argue that God had multiple intentions for the cross of Christ. There are multiple intentions with the cross of Christ. For a moment, I want you to consider the word love. Consider the word love. Now, uh, almost every preacher has talked about the dynamic nature of love. You've heard uh, pretty much sermon after sermon about the different meanings of love that Love in the English language is translated love, but in the Greek there are multiple words for that same word that we translate love, and everyone knows that there are multiple meanings to the word love. 
And we love everything from our spouses to cinnamon rolls. And believe it or not, I love some cinnamon rolls. I've been kind of changing my eating habits lately. And a couple weeks ago, uh, I was doing well, but it was a Sunday morning, and I actually ended up eating five of the eight cinnamon rolls in the, in the little container. And so I kind of fell off the wagon a little bit. But I love cinnamon rolls. And I mean, I really love them. But I certainly don't love cinnamon rolls like I, like I love my wife. I really don't. And if Jordan, if I just loved her the same way I love cinnamon rolls, it would be a little weird. But love is dynamic and it's full and it's multidimensional. And it would absolutely be absurd to think otherwise. But for some reason, when it comes to thinking about the work of Jesus on the cross, we have a single intention understanding of it. We don't see it as, as dynamic. We see love as dynamic, and to say that I love cinnamon rolls is not, it doesn't mean that I don't love my wife, or to say that I love my wife doesn't mean that I don't love cinnamon rolls. Everyone naturally knows, if you understand the English language, that we're talking about different types of love when I say I love both of those, one my wife and the other a food. But when it comes to the cross, most of us have a single intention understanding of the cross. Let me, exp- let me explain. What is the single intention understanding of the cross? Or we could call it the single intentioned gospel. Here's what it is. Jesus died for everyone who has ever lived in the exact same way. He died for those who are in hell just the same as he died for those who are in heaven. He died for those who are in hell just the same way that he died for me. Jesus' death proved God's love for the whole world, and it made salvation possible for everyone who has ever existed. The sacrifice of Jesus wins people over because it shows us how much Jesus loves us. God's single intention was for Jesus to die for everyone in the exact same way. This is what I call the single-intentioned gospel. It's closely aligned with the universal love of God for everyone. God loves everyone the exact same way. It has been stated before, and many of you may even believe, even right now. But with this view of the single intention intention gospel, Jesus' death, it makes salvation possible for everyone. But I want you to hear me clearly. Jesus' death while making salvation possible, does not actually secure the salvation for anyone. With this single intention view of the gospel, salvation power comes from the person to the cross. So if a person is going to be saved, it, the power to be saved comes from the person setting their heart, setting their mind toward the cross and tapping into the cross of Christ. Sinners have to tap into Christ. And power to be saved actually lies in the response of people. But believing Jesus died for everyone in the exact same way, what ends up happening when we believe that, it ends up becoming the interpretive grid for how we read the rest of the Bible. (coughs) So instead of the Bible giving us a more full understanding of the work of Christ, we apply our single intention understanding of the cross over every page in the Bible that we read about the work of Jesus. We just put it there. We insert it into the Bible. And so when we see these verses 
and I read these verses that we've read so many times before, uh, what I'm expecting to happen is that for some of you, there may be a light bulb that goes on. Or for some of you, there may be some questions that may start stirring in your mind like this. How have I never seen this before? We put this single intention cross into the pages of the Bible. But here's the deal. The Bible does not speak of the cross in that way. Jesus' death wasn't simply for everyone in the same way. It was so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. God had multiple intentions for the cross of Christ. And Jesus didn't just try to fulfill those intentions. He accomplished all of those intentions perfectly. He didn't try really hard. He actually did something. He actually accomplished, he accomplished an infinite amount of things on the cross. The work of Christ, it wasn't incomplete, needing supplemental work from you or me. The work of Christ does not need people to make it powerful and effective. The work of Christ is powerful and effective. Jesus did not go to the cross full of hope. That maybe, just maybe, my death will prove my love. And maybe, just maybe, people will turn from their sins and trust in me. No, Jesus didn't go to the cross and die full of hope. He died with certainty that his death was not going to be in vain. He knew exactly what he was doing and exactly what he was accomplishing. I remember it almost as if it was yesterday... Eight, nine years ago, I was reading John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. And in the introduction of that book, he had a, just a little sentence that's always stood out to me that I'll never forget. And John Stott says this, The distinction between an objective and subjective understanding of the cross, of the atonement of Christ, needs to be made clear in every generation. Meaning, Jesus didn't die trying. Jesus tried, and not just tried trying to accomplish things. Jesus actually made atonement. He didn't try to make atonement. He didn't try to save people from their sins. He actually did it. Jesus accomplished atonement. And power to people comes from the cross to the person, not from the person to the cross. And so God the Father had at least... Three primary intentions with the cross. And Jesus accomplished all of those perfectly. Intention number one. God the Father had intentions for the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. The cross of Christ was for the bride. Secondly, there were intentions for the world. So non-Christians, Jared Wilson would be preaching on that tomorrow. There were intentions for the world, purchasing common grace, ensuring a universal call. And he'll get into that more tomorrow. So intentions for the bride, intentions for the world, and third, intentions for the entire cosmos. When you walk out that door and step on that gravel, when you look at the blade of grass that's coming up this spring and you start mowing again, when you see the wind blowing the trees, when you see in the fall the colors changing, When you look out in the sky and you see beautiful clouds or a beautiful sunset or a huge sky full of trillions upon trillions of stars, 
The work of Christ affected that. It reconciled that. The work of Christ had intentions. There were intentions there for the entire cosmos. Michael Kelly will be preaching on that tomorrow. But here's the deal. Failure to see the multiple intentions of the cross, it leads to endless biblical debates and and fruitless banter. A lot of the denominational controversies that surround the cross are there because there is a sheer refusal to see the multiple intentions of the cross and see the biblical picture of the cross as it is stated in the Bible verses. The picture the Bible gives to us. Instead, we want to demand that the cross is about this single intention or this single intention or this single intention. And then arguments ensue. No, the death of Christ was for the bride. No, it was for the world. All means all, and all is all all ever means. Okay, you've heard these. Maybe you haven't. But certainly they're there. But today and tomorrow, we're looking at the multiple intentions on the cross. It wasn't singular. It was full. Just like the word love is full and dynamic, so is the work of Jesus on the cross. So here's what I'm tackling tonight. What did Jesus do for his bride? What was the Godheads, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, what was their intention for the bride on the cross of Christ? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5. And I have intentionally not bookmarked these passages in my Bible because I want to I hear you turn in the page, but I also want to turn with you so we can kind of know that we're together in this thing. I don't want to run past you and so... I'm going to be turning along with you. We're going to start in Ephesians 5, and just let me tell you quickly the direction that we're going. Um, this verse, Ephesians 5.25, is going to be the kind of the springboard into a kind of a systematic and biblical look at, uh, at the work of, work of the cross for the bride throughout the pages of the Bible. So we're going to look at Ephesians 5.25, and then we're going to jump to six uh, supplementary passages from Isaiah to Revelation. And so we're going to start here, Ephesians 5. And then jump to Isaiah, a couple passages in Matthew, and so forth, and we're going to end in Revelation. And then after those six supplementary passages, we're going to finish in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to see where the work of Christ is rooted in. It's, it's rooted in some ancient truth, and I want to look at that ancient truth from Ephesians chapter 1. So this is not going to be a strictly expository sermon. Most of us are familiar with that. Certainly if you're a part of our church, you are. Um, and <clears throat> if you are... Uh, a visitor, if you're a part of the journey, I know you're, you're used to exposition as well. This is going to be more of a topical sermon on particular redemption, but we're going to be starting in Ephesians 5.25, and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to, uh, to hang in there together and, uh, and you can follow, follow along with me. So Ephesians 5.25, I want to look at particular love. Particular love. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Well, how, Paul? How are we supposed to love our wives? He answers, As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this is interesting. What's unbelievably clear in this passage is that husbands are to model love for our wives after Jesus' love for his wife or his bride. And the immediate question that we ask when we're preaching on marriage or we're getting in or preaching through the book of Ephesians and we get to this passage is the question, what did Jesus do for his bride? How did he love her? 
And I want you to see that Jesus did something specific and something particular for his bride. He loved her specifically and he died for her specifically. The foundation for marital love between a husband and a wife, the job of husband, husbandry, we learn from something very specific that Jesus did for his bride that he didn't do for everyone. There is a special love in this passage that Jesus has for her. And there is a special death that Jesus dies in this passage specifically for her. It says it right there. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Does it say love your wives as Christ loves everyone? Or does it say husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church? Now this is very important. The love of Christ is also dynamic. It's not only my love for my wife and cinnamon rolls. It's also Christ's love that's infinitely more dynamic than my love. And we see some of the layers here in this passage. The foundation again, again for me and to my wife is Jesus to his wife. It is a special love and it is a special death because not only does he love her, but he also gives himself up for her in a way that he doesn't give himself up for everyone else. So the ground, the ground floor, the example is this special love that Jesus has for his wife. And he gives up himself specially for her. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love non-Christians. But it does mean that he loves them in a different way. Again, to argue that I don't love my wife because I love some sorts of food or some type of food is absurd. Or to say that I don't love food because I love my wife is absurd. And so to say that the fact that Jesus specially loves his bride means that he doesn't love the world, is equally, in fact, in, in a greater degree, it is absurd. But he loves his bride specially, and he loves, his, loves the world in a different way. So husbands need to hear this. Do not love every woman like you love your wife. <laughs> you love her like you know, love no other, just like Jesus loves his church like he loves no other. Love her particularly. Know her like you don't know any other woman. Know the details of her life. Care for her in a special way. Give yourself to her in a way you don't give yourself to anybody else. But is the special love of Jesus in this passage, this particular love, is the special death of Jesus in which he gives himself up for her, where he substitutes himself for her, is this the only place in the Bible that we see this? Is it isolated to this one verse? Or do we see the special love of God in other places as well? And i got to ask you a question. Do you only know the universal love of God? Or do you know anything of the special love of God? For so many of us, me for so long, and I'm still learning this, I generally knew about the universal love of God. I knew nothing about the special love of God. Maybe that's you tonight. You see, the difference between the special love of God and the universal love is this issue of conditional or unconditional love. 
What I'm preaching about here tonight, I'm telling you, unconditional love is on the line. Conditional love is understandable. Unconditional love is radical and offensive. And here's the point. Conditional love says this. My special love for God caused God's special love for me. And if you believe that, you don't know about God's unconditional love. Conditional love says, my special love for God caused God's special love for me. Unconditional love says this, God's special love. The special love we see in Ephesians 5.25, God's special love for me caused my special love for him. Conditional, unconditional. Conditional love is safe, it's understandable. God loves you, after all, because you have done something to earn it or merit it. Because you have specially loved him. Unconditional love is offensive because it says God's going to give it to you whether you want it or not. Whether you ask for it or not. You can't stop it. It's there for you even if you rail against it. Unconditional love is overwhelming. And it's given freely to his enemies. And it melts the hard heart of sinners. So here's a question. What other verses speak of this special, universal, unique, particular, all these words that we can use. What other verses of the Bible speak of Jesus doing something particular for his bride? Either loving her specially or giving himself up for her specially. And like I said, I'm using Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 as a launch point into the rest of the Bible. So we're going to look at six passages on the atoning work of Jesus from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 53. So go ahead and turn. Like I said, I'm turning with you. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 53, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. And I want you to notice something that you've maybe, probably, actually read before. But again, maybe today you see it with some new eyes. Starting in verse 10. We there? Kale, you there? Good deal. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide, the, divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, and makes intercession for the transgression. Now this is a famous passage from the Old Testament. It's a prophetic passage. The suffering servant, Jesus himself, happened 600 years, at least the prophecy was written at least 600 years before Christ came. And we are told in verse 11 something very, very interesting. In verse 11, we are told that this servant, the suffering servant, is going to make many to be accounted righteous. Now, notice what it doesn't say before we notice what it does say. It doesn't say he is going to make everyone to be accounted righteous. It says that he's going to make many to be accounted righteous, that Jesus is the suffering servant is actually going to do something here. Notice that he doesn't say he's going to make many 
possibly righteous. It, it actually is saying that he is going to do something for this group, the many. And he is going to make them accounted righteous. And it also says that he shall bear their iniquities. There's something specific. Again, just like in Ephesians chapter 5, we see something specific here. Jesus is actually going to bear their iniquities. There. So in this passage, not the world, not everyone, this many, he will bear their iniquities. In verse 12, it says it again. He bore the sins of many. Look at that. The second to the last line in this chapter, yet he bore the sin of many. Again, particular. He's not going to try to forgive. He's not going to try to bear their sins. He's not going to make a way for transgressors to be forgiven. He will actually die for their sins. He will do this. This suffering servant will accomplish this. He will be a substitute for the many transgressors. He is doing something special for them. Okay, so now we got two passages, but is there anywhere else? Is there anywhere else? And I'll just say this. Even if there was only one or two passages like this that speak of the particular work of God on the cross, it should help us understand to a greater degree the work of Jesus on the cross. There's got to be some category in our mind for this. There has to be. The, the dynamic nature of the work of Christ has to be in our mind. Let's not flatten it. Not, let's not simplify it to the point that we don't see it's, it, it for its fullness. So is there anywhere else? Well, let's turn to the Gospels and let's look. I want to go to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to see the very first words spoken about Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And, and we're going to look and see what they are. I think, again, it will again be helpful for us. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 18 through 21. Again, I'm kind of using my ears out here to wait to hear you turn the page. I hear one page turning out there. I'm just kidding. I see. I'm glad you brought your Bibles. That's good stuff. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 21. Here we go. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Again, this is the first word about Jesus in the New Testament. Spoken from this angel to Joseph. And what does this angel tell Joseph that Jesus will do? Well, Jesus is going to try really hard to save a group of people or to save everyone. And hopefully people will trust in him. And there will be a few, maybe a lot, I don't know, of people who will trust in him one day. Well, you're looking at your Bible, so you, you know that it doesn't actually say this. Verse 21, it says, For he will save his people from their sins. Again, we're told that Jesus is actually going to do something. He's not going to try. It's not the work of Christ isn't impotent as if it needs something else or it's powerless to produce the effect in which it attended, intended. 
He will actually save his people from their sin. An actual atonement for actual people. And it, again, it's particular. His people from their sins. His people, their sins. Now notice again. Not the world. I know, I know. We're going to get there in a second. Don't freak out. His people, their sins. Jesus is actually dying in the place of real people, sinners. And he will save these sinners from their sins. Now let's turn to Matthew 26. Some of you, like at our church, receive communion weekly. Some of you maybe quarterly or once a month, whatever it may be in your tradition or, or denomination. And more times than not, when we go to receive communion, we find ourselves in Matthew 26. And I think there is something, not I think, I know there is something hidden in plain sight in Matthew 26 for us to consider. It's pertinent to what we're talking about. And I think we just read past it, blow past it, and don't think about it, and then just come and receive communion week in and week out. But I want us to look at Jesus teaching the night before the Passover, and he begins to talk about him and what he is going to do. That he is the Passover lamb. That his blood is the blood that forgives sins. And I want us to look at this, and I want us to consider. Tell you what, let's start in verse 26, and we'll read down through it. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now notice what the Word of God says. Jesus tells his disciples, those who are in the upper room, that he okay, is doing something it's going to be effective when we receive communion every single week. We go back to this. His blood is the blood of the covenant, and it is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This blood that Jesus is pouring out is accomplishing blood. It's not trying blood. Jesus' death is for the many, and it's actually going to accomplish the forgiveness of sins for the many. It's just what he says. It's, again, hidden in plain sight, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And here's what i got to ask. Why didn't Jesus say everyone? Why? It would have been a lot clearer, a lot easier, we would think, if he would just say, poured out for everyone for the forgiveness of their sins. We could all be happy universalists. And if you're like me, for so many upon for so many years hearing this message or reading these Bible verses, my radar would begin to go up and I would start putting the Bible against itself. The very beginning, I warned you and us together not to do that. So our radar goes up and it's like we say, but, 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 what about these other passages? And I want to say this as plainly and as clearly as I can. The fact that Jesus said that he is poured out for the sins of many, or in Mark when he says, 
who is a ransom for many. When we see this, it doesn't mean that Jesus did not die for everyone in the world. But it does mean he did not die for them in the same way. He died for his bride in a specific way. This group, this many, he died to actually forgive their sins. And then he died for the world in another way. Different intentions for them. So Jesus, when he says that this is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins, it's not all that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Oh no, it's so much bigger than him actually dying, making actual atonement for real sinners. It's bigger than that. It has implications everywhere in the Bible. And the Bible, in fact, tells us that Jesus is the Savior of the world. In John 3.16, we hear, For God so loved the world. World. Tim Tebow did not write that verse, by the way. It's actually there, John 3.16. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So there has to be some sort of implications for the lost world that were purchased by Christ on the cross because the Bible speaks to this. But I want us to hear specifically... Today, the particular work that Christ did on the cross. And as we consider this, we may have the if then, if that, then this scenario. And think, well, if Jesus died for the many, that means there's some people who can't be saved. But oh no, it doesn't mean that. Because Romans chapter 10 verse 13 says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jared will be preaching on that tomorrow. And so remember, this is not a war within the Bible. This is not a canon of Scripture within the canon of Scripture that we have to figure out. This isn't one verse, another verse, put it against each other and start fighting. This is letting the Bible fill our minds and fill our hearts and inform our thinking and inform our feeling as to the nature of the fullness of the work of Jesus. We're letting the Bible expand our understanding. So let's continue on. John chapter 10. Look at John chapter 10. Back to the particular work. I want you to feel this tension. If you don't feel it, I want you to think upon these things. Go back and listen to this sermon or write these passages down and read these passages. And I want you to feel this tension that that I'm kind of trying to draw you into. And I want, again, I want us to, I want our minds to be expanded. I don't want to lay demands upon the Bible that we have to understand it and understand all the ins and outs and have all our I's dotted and all our T's crossed. God is just so much much bigger and truer than that. And the cross is so much more objective than us picking one aspect of the work of the cross over the other. John 10, we're going to look at the good shepherd. We're going to look at verse 11 and then specifically at verses 14 and 16. So John chapter 10. I've been talking and I haven't even been turning, so let me turn there. John 10, verse 11, and then verses 14 and 16. Here's what Jesus said. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And then verse 14, down through verse 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not... 
this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, this is fascinating. Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd. And I take great comfort in this, by the way, as an under-shepherd, because I need a great shepherd. Pastors are simultaneously shepherds and sheep, and we have to be acquainted with both. And we have to know deeply that we need a shepherd. We need other brothers and sisters in Christ. But here Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And he says that he has done something specifically for the sheep of which I am. And he said that he has laid his life down for the sheep. In his work, the sheep, they're broader than simply the sheep of Israel. There are sheep among the Gentiles as well. And in fact, over and across all this globe, there are sheep. And Jesus lays his life down for them. He doesn't try to lay his life down for them. He actually lays his life down for them as a substitute sacrifice. Again, particular language. Why does it not say... Jesus, I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for everyone, everywhere, in all places, throughout all of history. He says he lays his life down for the sheep. Again, fascinating. Now go to Acts chapter 20. This is our fifth verse. I've not been counting these out, but this is the five, fifth of six verses that we're going to be looking at before we finish in Ephesians 1. So I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20. We're going to look at verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. Pastors, overseers, are to take care of the flock or to serve them, love for them, care for the church of God. Why? Because Jesus has obtained them with his own blood. Again, notice the power of the blood. The power of the blood purchased people. People don't tap into the blood power of the blood, the blood taps into, the power of the blood taps into people. Again, it's not impotent. The blood of Christ is powerful, accomplishing everything that Jesus intended for it to accomplish. He purchased people from God, for God, from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. He did this. Jesus didn't just make a way, he is the way. He didn't die hoping that his death would accomplish its purposes. He knew his death was not in vain. He actually purchased the bride. He purchased them with his own blood. Says exactly he obtained with his own blood. Jesus did this for his bride. And finally, Revelation chapter 5, if you'll turn there with me. And this is just absolutely beautiful. Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 9, and here's what the word of the Lord says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood 
you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. I want you to notice the continuity in just the passages that we've looked at here this evening from Isaiah to Revolution. Revolution. (laughs) Revelation. Again, Jesus' blood did something. He ransomed people for God. He died to purchase people, die for them, save them. From every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, and they're still out there, folks. They don't even know it yet. But the gospel is going to make way to them at some point, and they're going to be his because they have been purchased by Jesus. He didn't just make their salvation a possibility. He actually ransomed people who are currently under the wrath of God, people who currently have not responded to God's grace yet, people who currently do not know that they are the bride of Christ. He has purchased them, and because he has died in their place, they will one day know him before they die. He died in the place of his sinful bride, so the sinful bride would become blameless. He absorbed the wrath of God towards the bride so they would never have to face it. And that's why if Jesus died for you, there is no hell to pay. He will not pay you again the penalty due your sin after he died for it. He died in your place for your sins, absorbing the wrath of God so that you would not have to face God's wrath. Jesus does so much more than dying for everybody. He does so much more than making salvation possible. He does so much more than dying for everyone the same way. Jesus didn't, again, try hard on the cross to save everyone and then fail every every time somebody goes to hell. Hell Hell is not a sign of God's failure. Jesus did. Jesus accomplished. Jesus saves. That's what he does. And friends, beloved, that's why you're a Christian. You're a Christian because Jesus died for you in your place. The nature of grace and unconditional love. If you've never been offended by grace, you probably don't know much of it. There's more for you to discover because unconditional love, this death that Jesus died in your place, he doesn't ask your permission. And you don't earn it, can't deserve it, can't work for it. It's given freely. And a love that's not because of you is offensive because we love, love, love given to us because we're beautiful. But God doesn't love us because we're beautiful. God actually loves us in spite of us. Jesus actually comes to us to save sinners, not beautiful people. Finally and fully, the the cross is not a, a declaration of our beauty. It's the declaration of Jesus' beauty. It's not a declaration of our worth. It's a declaration of Jesus' worth. We look to the cross and we see the depth of our sin and grossness. And simultaneously we see... The beauty, the tenderness, the love, the power, the kingship of Jesus as he hangs there on that cross. Jesus died in our place. Spurgeon said it this way, Christ came in the world not to make men savable, but to save men. That's what we've been seeing in these passages. 
But here's what I want us to see, and this is how I want us to end this first session. The atonement, this work on the cross, this particular work that we're talking about here, the atonement is rooted in something eternally ancient. It's rooted in the love of the Father. And He chose a bride for His Son. So I want us to see this from Ephesians chapter 1. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 7 and then verses 13 through 14. And I want you to notice the unity of the work of the Father and of the Son, Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 3 through 7. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined, by the way, those two words so often are put in odds, put at odds with each other, but here's what God does, He puts them together. So if you're concerned with God's love, it'd be good to get a little familiar with God's predestining work. And if you know of God's predestination, His election, then you need to get acquainted with God's love because they go together. In love He predestined, they're not at odds. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now I want you to notice this. God the Father chose a bride for his son. God did this. He chose a bride for his son. He loved the Son and wanted to give the Son a gift. So he chose people in Christ, believers, chose people to be in him before the foundation of the world. This was entirely his will, entirely his desire. He wanted to do something for the Son. And in the mystery that is the Godhead, God decided to choose people in Christ and not choose people because of them. He chose them freely based on himself. In fact, we choose God because God chose us. God does not choose us because we chose Him. Big difference. Again, unconditional love is on the line here. If God chose us because we chose Him, well, that makes a whole lot of sense. But the unconditional love is too, it's too beautiful, it's too big, and that's why it's so offensive because it says God chose you while you were in sin and would have never chosen Him. And you chose Him. Because he chose you. God the Father chose a bride for his son and gave his son a gift. John 17, 6 says this, that I have manifested, Jesus speaking, I have manifested to your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Same thing as Ephesians 1. People that you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So God the Father is saying, here Jesus, here's a bride. I'm choosing sinners to put and make your bride. And then in verse 7, we see this unity because all those that God the Father chose to be in the Son, verse 7, it says this, in Him, so those who are in Him, we have redemption. Redemption not being made possible here. This is not what we're talking about, the possibility of redemption. In Him, we have it. Redemption through His blood. And then also in our possession, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
So all those who are in him actually have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. There's this unity here. And then we, we don't have the possibility of it, but the actuality of it. We actually get it. And then in verse 13 and 14, we see something equally as beautiful. Look at it with me. In him, so again, in him, chosen him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, so that's us out here, not in the church of Ephesus, so that's us here right now. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so people, the, the application of this redemption has to be believed. So if, if God the Father chose you in Christ and Jesus died for you to purchase his bride and go get him, and then if you're in Christ, at some point when the Holy Spirit does this work in you, you believe. You have to repent and believe in him. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glorious grace. So here's how this goes. This, this unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father chooses a bride for his son. He says, son, go get him. And the son, Jesus Christ, goes on a rescue mission to seek and to save that which is lost. To gather in his friends, to save actual sinners, to rescue his bride. To not try to bring rescue, but to actually rescue his bride. And then the Spirit comes along, Jesus dies in their place, resurrects for their justification, ascends into heaven, and then the Spirit is sent by God the Father and God the Son to go and apply that very work. And so the Spirit comes and applies that work and then operates as the guarantor that what God the Father and God the Son did for us, what God the Son did for us on the cross is actually ours. So the father chooses a bride. The son comes to die in the place of the bride. And then the spirit comes to apply the redemption and forgiveness of sins to the bride and guarantees the inheritance of the bride. What God has done for us is ours. It cannot fail. God does not fail. So we're at a moment of response. And there's two types of people in this room. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. And Christian brother, sister, I want to talk to you first. If you're in the faith, if you're a Christian, it's because of God and His grace. Not because of you. Jesus took names to the cross. Your name. Dan, Jared, Jordan, names to the cross. Your name. You're a Christian because God loved you first. Especially, out of the world, He chose you to be His bride. You're a Christian because Jesus died for you. Not because you're living self-sacrificially. Not because you abandon all to follow Him. You're a Christian because Jesus died for you. You are a Christian because the Spirit made you alive. You were dead. You've been made alive in Christ. Jesus' death purchased your future faith in Him. 
your faith in Jesus didn't purchase His death for you. Jesus' death for you purchased your faith in Him, your future faith. So in the beginning I said, what would God have? I hope all worship. I hope joy inside of you. Thankfulness. Whatever else the Holy Spirit would have. Non-Christian. Unconditional love is right in front of you. And Jesus is inviting you to it. John 6, 37, Jesus says this, Whoever comes to me, I will in no, in no way cast out. I will never come cast out. You have no hope to be right before God on your own. You are a sinner and spiritually dead. And you cannot make yourself alive. But thanks be to God, Jesus makes dead people live. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to come to Jesus. Jesus turns. Just like in, I just read, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you will come to him, he will never cast you away. If you'll have him, he'll have you. If you come, if you trust in him, you will find out that the reason you come, the reason you trust in him is because the God of the universe has set his unconditional love and affection on you before the foundation of the world. God the Father chose you to be the very bride of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I've done my best. This is particular redemption. Let's pray. Father, I ask that, number one, I just pray that this sermon would be honoring of you. That's what I want. And Holy Spirit, just help people respond. And I trust that you will. It's in your name we pray.